You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. When it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices, things can get complicated and time-consuming fast. Now you can assess risk, secure the trust of your customers, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more with a single platform, Vanta. Vanta's leading trust management platform helps you continuously monitor compliance alongside reporting and tracking risk. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Learn why thousands of global companies use Vanta to automate evidence collection, unify risk management, and streamline security reviews. Watch Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. Cyber agencies warn of BN Lian ransomware. There's a new gang using leaked Baduk-based ransomware. Chinese government-linked threat actors target TP-Link routers with custom malware. ChatGPT-themed fleeceware is showing up in online stores. Ukraine is now a member of NATO's Cyber Center. Tim Starks from The Washington Post shares insights on Section 702 renewal. Our guest is Ismael Valenzuela from BlackBerry, sharing findings from their Global Threat Intelligence Report. And the CIA's offer to Russian officials may have had some takers. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire Intel Briefing for Wednesday, May 17th, 2023. We begin today's news with an alert about a currently active ransomware operation. The Australian Cybersecurity Center, the US FBI, and CISA have issued a joint warning about BN Lian ransomware. The criminal group behind it has been especially active against targets in Australia, but it represents a general threat. The advisory says the group gains access to victim systems through valid remote desktop protocol credentials. It uses open-source tools and command-line scripting for discovery and credential harvesting and exfiltrates victim data via file transfer protocol, R-Clone, or Mega. Bian Lian had formerly used a double extortion approach, but has recently shifted toward a model that relies solely on threats to release the victim's data, as opposed to encrypt or destroy it. 
BN Lian Group engages in additional techniques to pressure the victim into paying the ransom, for example, printing the ransom note to printers on the compromised network. Employees of victim companies also reported receiving threatening phone calls from individuals associated with the group. Researchers at Cisco Talos published a report Tuesday detailing a new criminal group which is using custom ransomware based on leaked Baduk code in double extortion attacks against U.S. and South Korean business sectors. Talos explained that this is just the most recent group to use Baduk-based ransomware. A member of Baduk reportedly leaked the group's source code on the dark web in September of 2021. The adversaries go by the name RA Group and target insurance, pharmaceutical, wealth management, and manufacturing companies in the U.S. and South Korea, encrypting their data and threatening to sell it to the highest bidder on the dark web unless the company pays a ransom. Unlike some other approaches to extortion, this method puts a time restriction on the victim, which increases the pressure to pay. A Chinese state-sponsored threat actor researchers are calling Camaro Dragon is using a custom backdoor named Horse Shell to infect TP-Link routers. In a report released May 16th, Checkpoint Research found that this advanced persistent threat is using tailored access tools to infect TP-Link routers specifically targeting European foreign affairs entities. Checkpoint states, The discovery is yet another example of a long-standing trend of Chinese threat actors to exploit Internet-facing network devices and modify their underlying software or firmware. The APT's horse shell backdoor is a custom implant that allows the organization to maintain persistence on the infected machine. Checkpoint writes, The implant provides the attacker with three main functionalities, remote shell, file transfer, and tunneling. The implant is not specific to TP-Link routers. It can be configured to affect other firmware as well. The attack vector used to gain infiltration and infection is so far undetermined. There are significant code overlaps between Camaro Dragon's tools and those used by Mustang Panda, enough to suggest that the two APTs with pony car-inspired names are related, but Checkpoint stops short of identifying them. More research remains to be done, and in the meantime, they're tracking the groups separately. Interest in AI is prompting scammers to turn to AI-themed fleeceware, which they're posting in both the Apple and Google stores. Fleeceware, which enrolls the victim in a free trial that subsequently converts quietly into an unwanted continuing subscription, tends to fly under the online store's security radar, as it occupies a gray area between direct fraud and an offer that's nothing more than a bad deal. They typically don't, for example, collect personal data, nor do they make an overt attempt to subvert the platform's security measures. Sophos researchers detail the ways in which the scam is playing out. They follow five distinct fleeceware operations, all of which promise ChatGPT live AI functionality. One of them even trades on ChatGPT's name, calling itself ChatGBT, hoping thereby to gull careless readers eager to get in on the AI. One of the marks of fleeceware is that it charges for products or services that are legitimately offered for free. The current scams are no different. OpenAI offers basic ChatGPT functionality for free on its website. Ukraine is not a NATO member, but it's now a contributing participant, along with Ireland, Iceland, and Japan, in NATO's Cooperative Cyber Defense Center of Excellence, 
CCD-COE. Computing reports that progress toward that status began shortly after Russia's invasion last year. It's now a formal reality. The CCD-COE is headquartered in Tallinn, Estonia, and Ukraine's ambassador to Estonia, Mariana Betsa, said the accession was an important event that serves an important step on Ukraine's path to NATO. She added, In the light of Russia's continuous military aggression and hybrid war, Ukraine joining CCD-COE further strengthens our state's cyber capability. I want to thank the CCD-COE sponsor states for inviting Ukraine to join. I also extend my special gratitude to the Republic of Estonia as the hosting state for their support and assistance on our path to NATO CCDCOE. And finally, the CIA recently published a video invitation offering disaffected Russians, especially officials, a secure way of contacting them, and it may be attracting some takers. The Wall Street Journal reports that an official has told them it is resulting in contact. The official declined to say how many Russians had made contact or what information they were offering, but the tone of the remarks is broadly optimistic. The message that went out through a range of social media channels was a digital expression of the goals the CIA's Deputy Director of Operations, David Marlowe, said back in November. He said, We're looking around the world for Russians who are as disgusted with that as we are, because we're open for business. Coming up after the break, Tim Starks from The Washington Post shares insights on Section 702 renewal. Our guest is Ismael Valenzuela from BlackBerry, sharing the findings from their Global Threat Intelligence report. Stay with us. In the complex world of enterprise identity, securing legacy web apps at scale can be daunting. Strata Identity makes it simple. With Strata, you can effortlessly integrate non-standard apps with any identity service, like MFA or SSO, with zero coding and zero hassle. Designed by identity architects for identity architects, Strata works with every vendor, standard and app architecture. This means your apps can now speak modern protocols and integrate seamlessly with your chosen identity services. From securing on-prem web apps to migrating away from outdated identity providers or consolidating them, Strata helps you keep your complex access policies as you modernize your identity infrastructure and get rid of technical debt. Join leading organizations like 3M, Dallas County, and CIBC in securing your apps with Strata. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity security priorities, and receive a complimentary pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. Ismael Valenzuela is VP of Threat Research and Intelligence at BlackBerry. I spoke with him about the findings from their most recent Global Threat Intelligence report. Some of the things that we we saw is an increasing trend in use of uh, info stealers. 
this is, uh, as everything around malware, also related to the uh, macroeconomic uh, situation. A lot of people after the pandemic or during the pandemic working from home, still, you know, we have a lot of uh, remote work, hybrid work. So attackers are taking, you know, advantage of these uh, new remote access uh, capabilities to use these info stealers to steal corporate credentials, sell them on the black market. And this has been leveraged both by cybercrime and also uh, nation states, right, or the so-called APTs. And in this report, we talk about uh, the most prevalent one, which is called uh, Redline, that steals a lot of credentials out of systems, browsers, uh, FTP uh, details, VPN details, and, and much more. Something else that we also saw that we haven't seen for some time is that attackers are trying to maximize their investment by targeting different platforms, not just a desktop, but if I can, you know, from the mindset of the attacker, right, the business mindset, if with the same effort I can create a piece of malware that works on a desktop, on a server, on a mobile platform, on Windows, on macOS or Linux, that's a much much better uh, investment, right, or use of my time. Hmm. So that's what we're seeing. And uh, we're seeing that there are more instances of malware written in uh, languages like Rust or Golang that can be used uh, across platforms. Based on the information that you all have gathered here, what are your recommendations? How should organizations best go about protecting themselves? Well, we always go to the uh, default answers with, uh, uh, with this, right? We say, oh, mm. we need to ensure that we keep everything patched. That, And we often call these best practices, and I don't know what to think about it, but it sounds boring, right? <laughs> what was the <laughs> best practice? It sounds like boring. Uh, it's important, right? We need to do that. But that's not enough. I think that's like the bare minimum. Because attackers know that a lot of people are, you know, they do implement these best practices. But, for example, patching. This is something we have to have. But if there's a supply chain attack, patching is not going to, the best defense against that, it's not going to prevent that from happening. So, I think that at the same time, there will be organizations out there saying, well, you know, will I be a victim of a supply chain attack? So it all comes down to building a, a proper threat model. And that starts with, that's a strategy really. Before going and implementing defenses, we need to think about who has something, uh, who has an interest out there, right, in my organization. What do we have that could be interesting? or anybody out, out there. And it could be cyber criminals, and we know that nobody is outside of the scope of, of those, or it could be a nation state, something a little bit more targeted. And we see this constantly, especially in this world where the geopolitics are so complex right now. Mm. Uh, we, we see a lot of, the, a lot of those motivated uh, attacks. But in general, you know, having a zero trust mindset, philosophy uh, to approach a... Um, any defensive strategy where physical attacks uh, are part of that and a, a proper threat model according to your industry, to your um, uh, profile, to your geolocation, where you conduct business, that's important. Can you make the case here for organizations engaging with someone who provides threat intelligence, You know, an organization like yourselves, and certainly there are other providers out there for folks who aren't doing that, how do you describe the, the value proposition there? 
Uh, I'm glad you asked this because when I talk about threat intelligence, it's one of these words that can mean a lot of things, right, to different people. Mm. So, so how do we package this or how do we make it actionable? One of the ways in which we do this is with the reports that you that you see. We try to make an effort to make this understandable to a lot of different audiences, not just the technical people, which of course they want to know the analysis, right? The nitty-gritty details of the malware, how it works. But also to somebody like a like a CISO. I, I talk to a lot of CISOs of organizations that have maybe one or two security people. And that's it. That's what I call the all-around defender, right? The guy that has to wear a lot of hats and mm. secure the endpoint, the servers, uh, the cloud, the network, everything, and, and, and more. They, they do not have the ability to you know, have a lot of people maybe doing threat hunting or things like that. that you know, sounds fascinating, but the reality is that these guys are just trying to, to put out fires, trying to patch machines, trying to do instant response. They don't have time for this. But they all need to make decisions and prioritize where am I going to invest the little time I have or the little money I have and how do I do this in a way that it's going to be meaningful to my organization. And that's where threat intelligence can help. Uh, threat intelligence has like different uh, tiers. It could be operational or tactical at the bottom of that you know, pyramid or it could be strategic. And this type of strategic information could be in the form of a, maybe a PowerPoint presentation. For example, if uh, this organization that we're discussing here, a fictitious organization, conducts business in uh, Asia, there is so much interesting activity right now in Southeast Asia. We're seeing a lot of attacks against uh, uh, countries like Singapore, uh, a lot of uh, activity in Taiwan with actors that are very... You know, nations in the in the area that are very interested in seeing what's happening in some of these countries, not only with government agencies, but also with mining companies, uh, telecommunications, uh, anybody that could be uh, that could have interesting information, right? That a government might be interested in. What could happen if there is, uh, you know, maybe an invasion of Taiwan in the in the near future? What, how can that change the whole uh, business outlook for these organizations? What's the activity that's happening right now? How do we detect this? This could be a presentation that could be for a CISO that could translate this information or present it to the board on, look, based on our profile, this is where we should invest in more. This is what we should be doing or stop doing. That's Ismael Valenzuela from BlackBerry. Joining me once again is Tim Starks. He is the author of the Cybersecurity 202 at the Washington Post. Tim, it's always great to welcome you back. Hello, hello. So very interesting uh, report you put out uh, in a recent uh, Cybersecurity 202 here. You, you're really looking at uh, Section 702 surveillance and, and reaching out to your network for insights on that. Can we start off with some explanatory stuff here for folks who... Uh, may not be familiar with it. How do you describe Section 702? Yeah, so it is a part of the 1978 Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. It's always interesting how many of these laws uh, that govern our, some of our, our modern digital rules are, are, are dated back that far, although the Section 702 powers didn't, didn't get created until well after 9-11. This is a part of the 
law that says uh, that the U.S. intelligence community can conduct bulk, widespread uh, surveillance on foreign targets, ostensibly originally for counterterrorism purposes, without an without a, a explicit warrant for each of those uh, pieces of surveillance. The reason it's controversial from the start was that you can target those foreign targets, but they might be communicating with people in the United States. And then after, uh, there are ways for people to, uh, in, in, the, in the security community, security government community, to access or query those, those communications uh, based on American identifiers. So, so you get into some real privacy concerns uh, there, but, you, but what you also hear from, from the Biden administration, especially with the Section 702 powers about to expire at the end of this year, that it is a very, very powerful tool. It is perhaps their most powerful tool in certain ways, uh, and, and that it is increasingly, mostly, being used to counter cybercrime. Hmm. So you reached out to uh, your network, uh, folks who subscribe to the 202, uh, for insights here, and you got some interesting responses. Yeah, so we have a, a, a subset of our subscribers that we call, with a capital N, the network. Um, and they are people who are, are, are experts that we've, we've decided to, when we, we do a, a poll, ask them a question and, and report on their, their results uh, statistically. And, but then also for those who are willing to offer an explicit on the record comment why they voted the way they did or why they took the answer they did. And in this case, uh, there, there were three choices. One was just reauthorize it as is. Another was reauthorize it with changes. And another was don't reauthorize it. And in this, in this case, uh, the pretty significant majority, 64% said reauthorize it, but make some changes. And then another 20% said reauthorize it. So that's, you know, that's a pretty significant percentage. They're saying, we need this power. And, and uh, you know, another complicator uh, in getting this thing reauthorized is that Republicans have, have, have taken issue with FISA overall, not this particular section, due to some, uh, some negative uh, reports about how this was used to spy on the Trump campaign or, or a Trump campaign official. And, you know, actual audits were saying, yeah, this is not, the way they did this was very faulty. So, you know, the, the gripes about FISA uh, usage in this case seem quite legitimate. So you, you have a combination of folk on the left and the right who, who don't like this Section 702. But, but the people who are in the cyber field that, that are our readers and, and parts of our network are saying we need to keep this for the most part. Can we go through the arguments here? I mean, for, for those who are saying that we want to reauthorize and perhaps do so with changes versus those who are saying, no, we should need to scrap this and start over? Yeah, which is interesting because if you look at the, the percentage of people who, who are the majority saying we need to reauthorize this with changes, they don't have one, one answer, which is another indicator of how difficult this is going to be, right? We already mm. mentioned the, the, the conflict on the left and right. But people don't have a, a unified idea about the specific way in which we need to make changes. So that's a, this is one of the sort of stealth aspects of the survey results. Or result is that we see yet how more complicated this is going to be. So one example of of a change that people have talked about is we, we mentioned that that issue of people being able to uh, query Americans' uh, data or, or or access it indirectly through the sort of incidentally collected communications that we're targeting foreigners. There's some suggestion that we, we need a, a warrant requirement for that, for American for the American part of it. Mm-hmm. Then there are issues related to the EU uh, and, and the data privacy situation we've got going with them. They have ha- had objections to the way 702 has, has been used in a bulk way uh, to collect information on people there. Um, that's another issue to consider. 
Um, there's also the fact that apparently, you know, without we mentioned that American warrant requirement, there's some concern from our from some of our folk uh, in the network poll that who said, actually, if you do that, that's going to make the EU even more mad because they're already mad that we're we're treating them as a sort of second class target. So, so that that, that targeting part is is a complicator. On the side of people who are in favor of renewing it, they 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 do cite the Biden administration arguments, which are this is an extremely extremely powerful tool. Uh, it has mm-hmm. saved lives uh, on the counterterrorism side. There's a, it's one of the reasons why we don't have a ton of terror attacks all these days. On the on the negative side, there there are people who are saying it's just too it's just too much privacy violation. It's unconstitutional uh, fundamentally. The, the range of opinions was really fascinating. Yeah. How do you suppose this is going to play out? I mean, as you mentioned, uh, we've got till the end of the year to make something happen here. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Why are you doing this to me, Dave? <laughs> Ask, you know, I've covered Congress for so long, and, and uh, it's always hard to predict what they're going to do. And, and my default yeah. mode is always to say they're pro- if there's something that they, they might do, they probably will not. In this case, <laughs> in this case, I think there's a chance. You know, there have been times where they've sort of punted this kind of thing. Oh, the deadline's coming up. We weren't ready. We'll just uh, renew it for six more months. And then mm. they fight about it for a longer time. And they're like, oh, we're not ready yet. It was five, six more months. Hmm. And then eventually they'll come around to something you know, permanently. I think that there's room for compromise here. The issue is how much, how much of it the, the administration will, will accept. You know, I mentioned mm. that American uh, warrant requirement, American citizen warrant requirement. The administration says that's not workable. It won't work. At, what, at some point, maybe they might come to a compromise in Congress, but will the administration buy it? And if they don't, obviously there's veto authority. So it's, it's, it's a tough one. You know, there are times where I feel confident uh, that I think I know how things are going to go. Uh, I don't feel good about this one. I, don't, I have no clue, honestly. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> what do you think? Where's it going to go? What do you think? <laughs> oh, well, we're out of time, Tim. Uh, <laughs> Tim Starks is the author of the Cybersecurity 202 at the Washington Post. Tim, always a pleasure. It was, it was a pleasure until the end, Dave. <laughs> I'll talk to you next time. Later. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-plus-year partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast. You can email us at cyberwire at n2k.com. Your feedback helps us ensure we're delivering the information and insights that help keep you a step ahead in the rapidly changing world of cybersecurity. 
We're privileged that N2K and podcasts like The Cyberwire are part of the daily intelligence routine of many of the most influential leaders and operators in the public and private sector, as well as the critical security teams supporting the Fortune 500 and many of the world's preeminent intelligence and law enforcement agencies. N2K Strategic Workforce Intelligence optimizes the value of your biggest investment, your people. We make you smarter about your team while making your team smarter. Learn more at n2k.com. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is Trey Hester with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by John Petrick. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot cyber. <laughs>